So let's just pretend for a second that uh, the most important person, the person you admire the most, the person that you think is maybe the most important person in the world is coming over to dinner for dinner at your house. This person could be a politician. Maybe he's a president or the king of another country. Maybe he's a really important businessman that, that is a trillionaire. But in your mind, this famous person is important. Maybe with a word, he can make things happen. With the stroke of a pen, this person can change the world. And this person is coming to your house for dinner. Would you maybe tidy the house up a little bit? What would you serve for dinner that night? Would you serve the same old mac and cheese that you make? Maybe you would serve something special. Would you make your best dinner, the dinner that you like brag about? Would you use paper plates? Sometimes at our house we have the guests coming over and we're like, man, there's 10 of them. Let's break out the paper plates. We're not doing all those dishes. Or maybe you'd break out some of your nicest plates, your fine china. How about those areas of your house that you've been meaning to fix? You know those ones that you've gotten used to, so you don't even really recognize that it's an eyesore anymore? So you haven't gotten around to it? Would you finally replace all of those light bulbs that have run out, that have burnt out? How would you prepare? Now let's imagine that the guest is actually God in the flesh. What would you do to prepare to have God in the flesh for dinner tonight? Before Christ started his ministry, he sent out someone who would announce his arrival. Someone who would prepare hearts for his arrival. And that is what we will talk about today in our second Sunday of the Advent series. So this Advent series, we've been walking through Isaiah and we've been looking at how Christ actually fills prophecies from Isaiah. Last week we looked at Isaiah 42 and we saw how Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 42, that Jesus would not break a bruised reed, nor would he extinguish a faintly burning wick. This week we'll look at Isaiah 40. But we're going to do something a little bit different, and it's something that I've actually never done before. We're going to skip around a lot. Usually I like to get into one spot, and I just really examine that. Today we're going to skip from John to Luke to Matthew to Isaiah. And we're actually going to take a look at how, I, how John the Baptist fulfills this prophecy about the one crying in the wilderness from a couple different perspectives. So first we'll start off with John. So turn with me, if you will, to John 1, 19 through 28. Now, I've got this picture of these mountains in the background, and I talked a little bit about this. As you're turning, you can keep turning while I explain this. I talked a little bit about this last week, but I didn't have the picture of the mountains. So this time I got this picture of the mountain, and if you can imagine, looking from a distance at these mountains, this is kind of how prophecy worked. We get the privilege of standing in between two mountain ranges. But if you looked at sunset at a mountain range, 
Sometimes it's difficult to tell which mountains are in the front and which mountains are in the back. This was something that, the pro that people who lived before the first advent had a difficulty telling. So Isaiah receives the word of the Lord that is forth-telling. He's telling about what future events, and Isaiah is looking at it kind of like a mountain range, if you will. Meaning he sees that there's a bunch of stuff that's going to happen, but he's not quite sure the order. And that was the way it was throughout uh, Jewish history all the way up until the first advent. So when you look at, there's prophecy about Jesus coming the first time, fulfilled by Isaiah 53, and there's going to be prophecy about Jesus coming a second time. And you could look at a, a verse like Malachi 4. So in Malachi 4, he talks about the day of the Lord. Well, the day of the Lord is going to be a day of wrath and of judgment where all mankind will be judged. Some people thought that was going to be in the first advent because they were looking at a mountain range that was difficult to tell. We get the privilege of living in between the mountain ranges. So that's actually why I have the, the mountain range there. So now you should be at John 1. So we'll read through John 1, 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So first thing we, I want to note is that John kind of emphasizes the question of who is John the Baptist. That, so each one, as we look at John, we're going to look at Matthew, and we're going to look at Luke, each one has a little special emphasis. I think John emphasizes who is John the Baptist. And we see this through the line of questioning, right? So it starts off with, uh, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests. So this term Jews, John typically uses as a way to describe Jewish leadership. So you'll look through almost the entire book of John, or the Gospel according to John, and you'll see this term, the Jews. That typically means Jewish leadership. So the Jewish leadership sent these priests and Levites from Jerusalem as a convoy to kind of figure this question out. Who is this guy? Who is this John? And they asked the question, who are you? So we need to note, first of all, that John was so influential that the leadership had to take notice. He was a very influential man, and he kind of just comes out of nowhere. He just shows up on the scene, and, and droves of people are flocking to him. People from all over the cities are flocking to this wilderness area to be baptized to him. So it caught the attention of the religious leaders. Now, I think they're, they're flocking to him for a couple different reasons. One is because of Daniel 9. Remember, when we talk about this mountain range, Daniel 9 is full of prophecy, right? 
And, and, but Daniel 9 also gives us a timeline. There are weeks and days that he talks about. And he gives us this timeline. And actually, the, the Second Temple Jews were not idiots. They followed the timeline really well. They cared about prophecy. They studied prophecy. And they knew that according to the Daniel 9 timeline, the Messiah should be arriving on the scene any day now. This is one of the reasons why Second Temple Judaism was full of expectation for a Messiah, because of Daniel 9. And so you'll see a lot of, if you study the uh, Second Temple Judaism's uh, history, you will see there are a lot of false messiahs showing up on the scene. A lot of people claiming to be the Messiah, and there's a lot of expectation and hope for the Messiah. So there are a lot of people showing up to John hoping that he might be the Messiah. There's Messiah talk. And so with John showing up on the scene, they're hoping that he might be the uh, Messiah. The expectation uh, was there. The time was ripe. Expectation was high. And they came to him also because he was boldly preaching the kingdom that God had promised. And that was a message of hope. Second Temple Judaism, or I should say the Second Temple Jews, that was a time frame that was right around the the birth of Christ. It was a reference to to the culture of the Jews during that time of Christ and the history of the Jews during that time of Christ. And if you're familiar with history, Rome ruled over Israel. Now, Jews got actually, in Roman rule, the Roman Empire, Jews got a little bit of special privilege in that they were allowed to have their own religion. Everyone else had to conform to the Romans' religion. But that doesn't mean that the Romans liked them. In fact, the Romans that ruled over Israel despised the Jews. They thought they were a bunch of idiots. They hated them. It was like the worst place you could be stationed. But the Romans knew that they could make a lot of money off the Jews, and so there were two things that they were charged with. One was keeping the peace, making sure that these these guys that continued to start revolutions and continued to start insurrections and continued to revolt wouldn't revolt, while also taxing them as much as possible. They wanted to take as much money from Israel and send it to Rome as possible. Now, you and I both know that we don't like taxation without representation. Neither did the Jews. And yet they were getting squeezed harder and harder. More money was demanded. And so they were expecting this Messiah that would give them or usher in this kingdom that God had promised them. John is preaching that the kingdom is coming. So there's an expectation of Messiah. There's this kingdom preaching. So they were excited about this character named John the Baptist. But it's also one of the reasons why they wanted to know, why they were questioning. So we get to the questions. And notice the line of questions. This first question is, are you the Christ? And he, John doesn't even write it. He just assumes it. But what is his answer? I am not the Christ. So the long-awaited Messiah, throughout the Old Testament, there is prophecy about the Messiah. We have the privilege of living in between the mountains so we can clearly see the first advent and we can look towards and expect the second advent. 
but they had a hard time seeing the difference between Isaiah 53 and Malachi 4. Isaiah 53 paints the picture of the first advent of the suffering servant, the one that would, that would pay for our transgressions. Whereas Malachi 4 is going to be the day of the Lord. So they were expecting a conquering king as the Messiah. The Messiah would come and he would overthrow Rome. He would have a lot of authority. He would have a lot of power. He would build up an army and Rome would be overthrown. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were looking for in the Messiah. John directly refutes the idea that he is the Christ, the Messiah. His job was to announce the coming of the Messiah, not to be the Messiah. In fact, when Jesus finally shows up on the scene, John says, it's time for me to bounce out. I have a new ministry. My ministry is no longer to prepare the way of the Lord. It is now time to do something else. So he very directly refutes the idea that he is the Messiah. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Elijah uh, was going to come before the day of the Lord. Malachi 4 once again states that before the coming of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, particularly on evildoers, Elijah would come to turn hearts back to God. John is saying, I am not Elijah. The day of the Lord was not coming. The first advent would not usher in judgment on Rome that the Jews desired. So then they ask him, are you the prophet? The prophet is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. Moses was a mediator for a covenant between God and man, the Mosaic covenant. And this prophet would also be a mediator and establish a new covenant. And we see that Jesus does fulfill this role. Jesus is actually going to be the prophet. But John is not. And notice his answer here, no. Notice how each of his answers gets shorter. I am not the Christ. I am not. And just a flat out, no. Most commentators believe that John wrote it this way to reveal that John was a little annoyed with the line of questioning. And he was annoyed because those who sent John knew their power was being threatened. What they saw in John was people flocking to him, and those people, they were giving him more power. They were losing, the religious leaders were losing power. And they didn't like that. So they wanted to know, what they really wanted was they wanted to know who was threatening their power. And we'll see this with the last question. But before they do that, they ask, and you can kind of see how annoyed they are or frustrated they are with joy with John, because they ask, well, then who are you? Tell us. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So they're like, are you this? Are you this? Are you this? And no, 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 no. Well, just give us an answer, man. Come on. They were frustrated because they had a certain ideas and they weren't getting those ideas met. So this is where John quotes Isaiah. He identifies himself with the one Isaiah spoke about. And he says, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. 
make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Okay, so we weren't expecting that. So if you're not, it's like they don't even really care about this guy who's crying out in the wilderness, right? What they really care about is, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? And if you're not one of those, they asked him, then why are you baptizing? This was the question about authority. So we see that they see their authority and their power being threatened. So they want to get to the ch- they want to cut to the chase here. Why are you baptizing? This is a question about authority. For the Jews, baptism was a ritualistic purification used in two separate ways. One is to cleanse themselves from entering the presence of God. And so if you ever go to Israel, you'll see mikvahs everywhere. Some of you haven't even heard of mikvahs. And if you have heard of mikvahs, it might have been from me. Some of you have experienced the mikvah. But if you go to Israel, you'll see mikvahs everywhere. And mikvahs were for ritualistic purification because Jews believed that they had to purify themselves before they went to the presence of God. And so anytime they were going to go into the presence of God, whether it was praying or go up to the temple, they would dip themselves in this mikvah, and when they would come out, they believed that they were ritualistically clean, and they could go into the presence of God. Now, the Jordan, where where John was baptizing, was dirty. And so, also, they weren't going into the presence of God in the wilderness. So they didn't need to be baptized They didn't need to immerse themselves or ritually purify themselves in the Jordan, was their belief. But the second part, or the second purpose of of this uh, baptism for the Second Temple Jew was ritual purification for converts. For a Gentile who has gone through the process of becoming a Jew, the baptism was one of the last steps in identifying as a Jew. So the Gentile was saying, I no longer identify as a Gentile, but now I identify as a Jew. For the Jewish mind, a baptism in the dirty Jordan River was not needed. They were already God's people. No conversion necessary. And they weren't heading to the presence of God in the wilderness, so no ritual purification needed. And they missed the point. The baptism was an admittance of sin. Just because they were Jews, the Jewish leaders thought that they didn't need forgiveness. They thought that they were righteous because of their fathers. And we'll actually look at that in a couple other verses. But because their father was Abraham, because they were and their ancestors were Jews and the chosen people and the elect, that they didn't actually need God's forgiveness. In fact, there was an amount of arrogance that they had. Because they had the law. In fact, some of them might even thought that they were God's gift to himself. I look at this and I can't help but to think of Christians in America today. How often do we think we don't need God's forgiveness? In particular, when we grow up in the church. It is so easy for us to make our sin seem insignificant because we are surrounded by such 
crazy amounts of just insane sin. I got a call from a guy the other day who wanted to talk to me about someone who was struggling with same-sex attraction. And he was kind of going off on me about this person. He was telling me what a, how ridiculous this person is and what a sinner they were and how dare they ever be associated with, with anyone I knew. And I talked to him about, yes, this guy who has this struggle, he's acting upon sin. I also know this guy, and I, and I know that he grew up in a Christian house, and I know that he knows what he's doing is wrong. And I trust the Holy Spirit to do some conviction. And, and we, I kind of talked to him about how we need to interact with this person. And what he wanted me to do was he wanted me to go on Facebook and publicly declare this other person a sinner so that all the world would know that that guy's a sinner. I thought, wow. I don't know if that's showing God's grace. I ran into that guy a couple weeks later. Ran into him and his son. And though he had harsh words about the person that was struggling with same-sex attraction, he was encouraging his son to smoke and drink and party and sleep around with girls. Man, it's really easy to point your finger at that dude and totally not even think about your own sin. Now that's an extreme example, isn't it? But how many of us do the same thing? Maybe on a lesser extent, but how many of us talk about, man, I just hate it when that person speeds down the road because they're going 30 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour over while we go five. But five's justifiable. You know, five's not going to kill that person. So I can blame that other person. I can judge that other person. I can, I can hate that other person while I do the exact same sin just to a lesser extent. That's exactly what that guy was doing. Sure, the guy he was pointing the finger at was struggling with sexual immorality, but his own son was, stre- was struggling with sexual immorality. And he didn't care. In fact, he encouraged it because it was the right sin. How many people that grow up in the church struggle with sin that they cover up and think that, they're so, that they are righteous because they grew up in the church, because you know theology, because you know doctrine, and you don't think that you really need God's forgiveness. You don't think that your sin is really that horrible. Both you and I have struggled with sin, and our sin stinks. And it doesn't matter if it's going five miles over the speed limit or 30 miles over the speed limit it's still breaking the law. And it doesn't matter if you're struggling with same-sex attraction or if you're struggling with lust for the other sex. It's still sin, and it still stinks. And you need forgiveness, and I need forgiveness. So they were struggling with this idea of forgiveness They were struggling with this idea of repentance because culturally they had this idea that they were better. They were God's gift. They were God's elect, God's chosen. And they had lost sight of what God had chosen them for. As a church, 
we are looking through better together in Ephesians. And as a church, he calls us God's chosen, God's elect. And it's true. And we have this great privilege. But let's never forget what God chose us and elected us for. And that is to share the gospel of his grace. So they ask him this question, why are you baptizing? And it's really a question about authority. We don't need to be baptized. By what authority are you doing this? That's what they're really trying to get at. But what John does is amazing, is he doesn't even get into the argument of authority, right? So his answer, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So what does he do? He doesn't even talk about his authority, right? Like they're saying, they're trying to get, they're annoyed with him, they're frustrated with him, they're like, by what authority do you do this? And he doesn't even answer like, here's my authority. He just simply says, hey, look, and this was his whole purpose. This was his whole ministry. It wasn't about his authority. It wasn't about who he is. He's saying, look, I'm doing this this little thing that's calling you to repentance to prepare you for the one with real authority. That's the one you need to be looking for. The one with real authority. That's what John was all about. That is who he was. He simply deflects anything about his authority and points to the authority of Jesus. He's saying, you think I'm doing something with authority? Just wait, because you haven't seen anything yet. So that is John's take on John the Baptist. Let's flip over to Luke now. And Luke is going to emphasize John the Baptist as in a historical event. So so he's going to root this event in history. And what's so neat about this is we get to see John with the question of who are you and what does he do? He's like, don't even talk about who I am. Talk about who Jesus is. Don't even talk about my authority. Talk about Jesus. But then Luke starts to root this in history so we can look at this and see that this is a historical event. So John or Luke 3, and we'll go all the way, one all the way through six. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Atyria, and Traconitus and Licinius, tetrarch of Albaline, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and a hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So we see here that he roots this event in history. So he, point, he does that by pointing out to Tiberius Caesar. Now we know, we can go back through some uh, historical records and know that Tiberius Caesar was Caesar from 14 AD to 37 AD. Now what's really neat is that he roots it within the 15th year. So we know exactly what year John was out there baptizing, and that would be 29 AD. That's pretty cool. And that is really all we need. We don't need any more. 
Luke doesn't have to give us any more names. He doesn't have to give us any more details. That's it. We know exactly what year John the Baptist was out there baptizing, just with Tiberius, with the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's it. But what's awesome is Luke is like, I'm not just going to give you a small bite so that you can kind of think it's rooted in history. I'm going to really nail this down for you. I'm going to give you a plethora of evidence so that your faith can be only built up more in all of the historical evidence of who John the Baptist is and when he was baptizing. So he goes on and he gives us Pontius Pilate that we know was uh, the governor from 26 to 36 AD. And he gives us Herod Antipas from 4 BC to 39 and Philip also from 4 BC to 34. Now these other two, the Trichonidus and Licinius, we don't actually, we can't find any historical record about them. Not that big of a deal, right? Luke had historical record of them. The Jews and the Gentiles that Luke is writing to had historical records about them. They're pretty minor characters, so the fact that the historical records got lost about them, that's not that big of a deal. But then he also ties them in with Annas and Caiaphas. Now what's interesting about Annas is he was the high priest from 6 AD to 14 AD. He was removed by the Romans. That's kind of crazy. And because he was removed by the Romans, so the Romans, when they came in, uh, or they, they thought that Annas was being a bad high priest. He was creating too much of uh, insurrections. And so they were the ones to remove him. But if you know anything about Second Temple Judaism or just Judaism in general in the temple, there are no outside forces that are supposed to remove the high priest. Only God can call the high priest and remove a high priest. And so the Jews still considered him the high priest until 18 AD. The Jews didn't recognize Rome's authority with the high priesthood. That's pretty cool. And then we see Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law, take over from 18 AD to 37 AD. And that is going to be the high priest when Jesus is crucified. So we see it is rooted in history. And just to kind of root us a little bit more, let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, we also have the region. So this is, uh, this is the Jordan River, current day. This is from the Satellite Bible Atlas. Uh, I recommend everyone buy the Satellite Bible Atlas if you like. Some people just hate maps in general. Uh, so if you hate maps in general, maybe skip it. But I love the Satellite Bible Atlas. Uh, it goes through all the, the entire Bible, and it's got present day uh, satellite images that they put the maps over so you can kind of follow all the different maps and travels that different people do. But then they actually have pictures too. So it's a super cool uh, uh, resource and they also it comes in a hard cover but then they will also give you digital copies too when you buy it. So it's so cool. So this is the Jordan River and you can see just the wilderness here, right? It actually reminds me a lot of Arizona. Uh, but then there's this river that runs right through and you can just see that that uh, snaking green right there. That's the Jordan River. That's the area of his ministry. We'll go to the next slide. And it is rooted, in fact, in history. So when Jen and I were there, uh, I was up until well past midnight the night before. So I kind of, just as a disclaimer, I'm looking a little rugged because up past midnight and then we had to be on the bus by seven. It was a seminary class. I was writing papers and doing all this. But that's the Jordan River right there. So you can see, we're really pretty green, right? 
that's the kind of river you want to go swimming in, right? Maybe not. So cool, though, that it is rooted in history. It's grounded in history. So Luke gives us this historical perspective. But he also gives us the purpose of the baptism. And once again, it's a foreign idea to the Jewish leadership. He says that, uh, that he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is a foreign idea to the Jewish leadership. He also says, the word of God came to John. This emphasizes that this was not John's idea. It wasn't like John all of a sudden decided, hey, you know that idea that we have with the mikvah and the baptizing of, of converts? I got an idea. I'm going to go out to the wilderness and I'm going to start preaching this baptism of repentance. No, it was the word of God that came to John that propelled him forward. So he was a prophet speaking the words of God. So he was a prophet. He was a temporary mouthpiece for God announcing the one who is eternal. What's also interesting about Luke's perspective is Luke is the only gospel to record Isaiah verses 4 and 5. These verses stress that the Messiah is not just for the Jew, but he is for all, and that all will see God's glory through this. So that's all we're going to talk about with Luke's perspective. We could, we could develop a whole sermon series on that itself, but we'll flip over to Matthew at this point. So Matthew 3. And Matthew, I think he, the, the emphasis in his perspective is the message. So we had the emphasis of who John the Baptist is. We had the emphasis that this is rooted in, a, in history, that it was a historical event. And now I think... Matthew gives us the perspective of the message. What exactly is the message? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. This term preaching really means to share a message. You know, when we think about preaching, we think about what I'm doing here. We think about like a 30, 40 minute segment where someone gets up and tries to exegete some scripture. Uh, but for, for uh, the audience, this preaching really meant just giving a message. We might talk about preaching the gospel, meaning go out and share the gospel with people. You don't have to preach a whole long sermon. You can even reveal it through your life, right? When you show people God's grace, when you practice the fruits of the Spirit, that's part of showing the gospel to people. So that's kind of this, what this term means, is that he's preaching, he's showing the gospel, or, or uh, showing this idea of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand to people. So he was preaching, and what's interesting here is that uh, Matthew, unlike Luke and John, doesn't give the exact coordinates of where he's preaching. So, you know, Luke tells us that he's preaching out, he's baptizing in the, in the Jordan. Matthew says, in the wilderness. Now that's interesting that he picks up, or that he writes like this. This is actually a reference, or, or the Jew, I should say, the Second Temple Jew, would see this as a reference to the time that the Jews were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, why did they wander in the wilderness for 40 years? It was because of their unbelief and their rebellion. So the fact that Matthew references the wilderness, it is a reference to Israel's unbelief 
and their rebellion. Their disobedience to God. So, he's tying this in, this message of preaching in the wilderness to those who are disobedient, and then he gives us what he's preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, repent is not just sorry. It's not just an apology. Sometimes when we think of repentance, we think of an apology, or we think of like just saying, I'm sorry, and never really changing. Sorry is regret for the consequences. You know, sometimes when my kids are fighting, one punches the other one, they get in trouble, and what do they do? They say, I'm sorry. And what they really mean is, I'm really sorry that I got caught. I don't like these circumstances that I'm in right now. I don't like being in trouble. But given the opportunity, I'd punch you all over again. That's not repentance. Repentance means to change one's way of thinking and therefore one's way of acting. That's what repentance is. So when the, when the Bible talks about repent, it's really saying change your way of thinking. So what did Israel need to repent of? Well, they're thinking that because they were the elect, they were automatically made right with God. That because they were a Jew, they were automatically saved. Essentially, they thought their lineage made them right with God. How might you need to change your way of thinking? How do you view yourself? So then he gives not just the repent, but then he gives them the reason why to repent. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. And what he's saying is that, that the king was coming. The king, who is the Christ, is going to come. Change your way of thinking. You think you got it all together. You think you know what you're doing. You think, as you look at that mountain range, that you have that prophecy perfectly spelled out and that the Messiah is going to come and rescue you from your oppressors. And you got it all wrong. Yes, the Messiah is going to come. Yes, the King is coming. And He is going to rescue you. But He's going to rescue you from your own sin. He's going to rescue you from your own crooked heart. So then he's going to go ahead and give John's description. And he's actually, John is going to sound a lot like his description, is going to sound a lot like Elijah's description. So you can kind of see why the Pharisees thought he was Elijah. Then he's going to give some strong words for the religious leaders. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See how our repentance, our change of mind, changes our action? To bear fruit that keeps with repentance means that you've changed your mind about yourself and about God, and that's actually going to play out in our life. 
And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. See, there's, the, there's their problem, right? Because we have Abraham, we're righteous. Because I was born into a Christian family, I'm righteous. We might say the same thing, right? For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Those are harsh words that he shares. And then, once again, he emphasizes Christ's authority. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So once again, he says, not me. My authority doesn't matter. It's Christ. I'm preparing the way for Christ, whose sandal I'm not worthy to touch. Now, that was considered like the lowest of the low. If you think about those days, walking in those streets, they're dusty, they're dirty, and you're sharing the same road as animals who uh, don't typically go off the road to use the bathroom, so you can imagine what your sandals are stepping in all the time. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to touch that sandal. Once again, it's not about me, but about God. It's not about me, but about God. It's not about me, but about Jesus. That is the message that John gives over and over and over again. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. So to grab this context, let's turn over to Isaiah 40 now. We're just going to read 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So he, John is identifying himself with this voice. And not only did John do it in Isaiah, or in, in John, but then Matthew and Luke do it for him. They say this is the fulfillment. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this voice crying in the wilderness. So what does this voice cry? Well, he's crying to prepare the way of the Lord, right? And then he gives us directions on how to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if you'll remember, Isaiah is broken into two major sections surrounded by historical events. So the first section of Isaiah, the historical event is as the Syria army comes down to invade Judah, the question before King Ahaz is, will you trust in God or will you trust in man? That's the question laid before him. And then he will uh, prophetically develop that idea about how we can trust in God. And that will go bring us all the way to chapter 36. At chapter 36, we change scenes and you've got King Hezekiah. The Assyrians are coming down now to Jerusalem. They're going to lay siege at Jerusalem. Isaiah is letting Hezekiah know that they are going to win. Don't worry about it. God's got this. But in the end, after, after the Assyrians flee back to the north, will you take the glory or will you give the glory to God? And then he's going to prophetically develop that idea that God gets the glory through the, net, through the rest of the book. So this whole section is about God's glory. And as we look at this section and about God's glory, he's going to contrast it with the glory that kings often took. So even last week, when we talked about the bruised reed being broken and the, the smoldering wick being burnt out, that's what kings would do. 
Kings cared about building their own kingdom, and they didn't care who they killed to build their own kingdom, to build their own legacy. But Christ wouldn't do that. Christ cared for the broken and the bruised, the worn out and used. And here we see again a contrast between the kings. When kings were going to a new city, they would take slaves to clear the way for them. They would clear the way, they would prepare the way so that the king could walk in with ease. So that's what this is a reference to. But we see that in preparation for the Lord, you're going to make the desert highway straight. So no longer curving through the desert, but make it straight, a direct route. Now, we can say that this is going to be figurative, not literal, right? Because everyone knows that God, if he wants to go direct route, he can take a direct route. So how are we to apply this? It's to our own hearts. So every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And that's going to show, that reveals the glory of God, that all of these kings wanted to prepare a highway, right? And so what did they do? They sent slaves ahead of them to clear off any rocks or debris. But for God, we're going to move mountains. Valleys, these valleys that would dip down low will be filled in. Those mountains that go way up high are going to get chopped down. There's going to be a massive remodeling because of God's glory. Because God's glory is so awesome. But once again, we take this figuratively, not literally, because God doesn't need us to clear the mountain way to make a direct path. And so when John shows up and he says, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, he's saying, I'm preparing the way for God by preparing your hearts. And the first way to prepare your heart is to recognize that you need a, sin, a Savior, that you are a sinner, that every single one of us, this as we prepare to, to celebrate the birth of Christ, that's what Advent is all about, preparing to celebrate the birth of Christ. As we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ, our first step to prepare our hearts is to recognize that every single one of us has shaken our fist at God in rebellion at some point. Every single one of us, at some point in our life, has said to God, forget you, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what is best for my life, I know. And therefore, I'm going to leave your way behind, and I'm going to do things my way. And for that reason, every single one of us deserves death. Death is eternal separation from God. But because God is a God of mercy and love and grace. He came to this earth. He didn't have to. But He came to this earth and He died in your place. He took that death that you deserve for your rebellion and He placed it upon Himself so that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, when you say, God, I am a rebellious sinner. I have rebelled against you. I deserve death. But I also recognize that you love me so much that you paid the price. And when you put your trust in him paying the price for your sin, he transfers you from being dead in your trespasses and sins to being alive together with him.
and you're no longer controlled by sin and rebellion, but controlled by the Holy Spirit. So what's the first step in preparing the way for the Lord? It's recognizing our own desire to sin. It is recognizing our own rebelliousness and that we need a Savior. Have you recognized that yet? Dear Lord, we recognize that we have rebelled against you. Every single one of us, in some form or another, has shaken our fist at you and said, forget you, I want to do things my way. And the result is death. We recognize that we deserve eternal separation from you, but we also know that you are a great God who loves us with such a great compassionate love that you came and you died on the cross for us. Help us to recognize our own rebellion, our own sin, so that we would come with repentance before you, ready to be made alive together with you. In your name we pray. Amen.